the inspiration of this sermon today started probably years ago. Um, I'm going to drag you in this, Brandon. Years ago, I used to go to this uh, Bible study called The Huddle. Has anybody been to Brandon Perry's The Huddle? He used to have it in the basement. It was a Bible study just for men. And he had it in the basement. No, no. Shonda was kind of not happy that it was only men. I remember the time she got an opportunity to come to the huddle, and she made sure she made it in there. So he had a Bible study group called the huddle, and when he did that, and it kind of, people were getting busy with their life, I ended up starting my own group called Christ Body Repair. And because I'm a body repairman, with that I started a group for guys myself because of the example that Brandon Perry set on me. Brandon Perry didn't know at the time... I think he knew at the time. I was running the streets. I was doing things that I shouldn't do. And Brandon came along, and he had this way about him that made me feel that I needed to change. And through that time, I was just talking to my wife yesterday. He came over because he had called me and kept calling me. I was working in my shop, and I wasn't answering. I'd never seen the phone call, and he just walked right in my gate. He said, gee, why ain't you answering my phone? He thought I was slipping backwards. And I wasn't, but uh, he came to check me about it. And that's, that, that stuck with me for, for a lifetime. And I felt that he saved my life because I was doing things that I shouldn't do, things that I shouldn't be repeating. So with that being said, he started a group called The Huddle. I started my own group called Christ Body Repair. And this is the inspiration of this sermon, part of the inspiration of it. And the other part of the inspiration, we're talking 15 years it took me to finally write this sermon. And part of the other inspiration was a brother. My brother was pushing me to get back into writing and speaking, and I wasn't. And I went through a situation. So sometimes situations as Christians lead us to either succeed in the walk or fall in the walk. But thankfully, the Bible says a righteous man falls several times, the wicked lay dormant. Our duty is to get back up. We have to have good Get up game. And this is what I've learned through the Christian experience and the Christian walk. Walk means it's a movement. If you're laying down, you're not moving no more. You're not growing no more. So there was a situation that happened with my wife and I. We moved out here originally because um, her mother had gotten cancer. Everybody's pretty much familiar with that. We lived probably about 70, 78 miles from here maybe 70 miles from here, and it was quite some drive to go to her house. She wanted to move back out here. We had a house out this way, and she wanted to help take care of her mother. She said, let's move to our old house. I said, we can't do that. The The renters at the time kind of destroyed it. It was laying dormant for a while. She said, it's just paint and carpet. I was like, no, it's not. It's not paint and carpet. <laughs> they, they, caught the, they caught the siding on fire, the, the electrical on fire. There was uh, plants in the garage, I'll say that. And it, it, was, <laughs> it was bad. So that's what caught the fire. And I had a lot of work to do when she came in. She's like, oh, my goodness, what are we going to do? I want to take care of my mom. So we moved in with my mother. Okay. And then what thought to be a couple months ended up being a couple two and a half years at my mother's because the house was so bad off. And we went through this series of events where our faith was really being shook, mine especially, because I had put so much time and effort into this house. 
remember the storms that we had. I think this was last year. Remember the rainstorms that we were having and everybody was flooding out? I just redid our kitchen. Brand new cabinets, brand new everything, drywall, um, different things because the place was destroyed already. Now it's time to rebuild. We walked in and I just heard sploosh. I was like, there was no lights and my foot was soaked to about here. And that was after the water had receded. I said, you got to be kidding. We get the water out. Oh, we just bought brand new furniture. It was sitting, sitting in the living room. My tools were floating by as I was walking in. The couch that just got delivered the day before was kind of teetering. I was like, you got to be kidding me. It was still in the box, just rocking back and forth. And we're beside ourselves. We didn't know what to do. We get that cleaned up. We have a uh, asbestos and abatement removal guy come in. He helps us dry the place out. We had to cut some drywall out. I just did drywall. We had to gut the laundry room. It was just fiasco after fiasco. We get through this, and then it happened again. We get through. I'm sorry. We get through that, and it happened again. So three floods within two months? Two months. The insurance company don't want to cover it. All our materials laying in there, flooded out, warped, uh, saturated, my tools, just dripping water, rusting, and I'm frustrated. I'll be honest with you, I'm frustrated. Not only am I frustrated, I'm angry. And I don't know that I'm angry with God. I'm just angry at the situation. I'm angry because I'm like, why is this happening? I feel I'm faithful, but obviously not faithful enough because I'm angry. We get through this last one. Uh, my father-in-law was there, and, and I know he saw the frustration. I know he saw the frustration, probably a side that he didn't see of me because I was pretty angry. We get through that, and... I end up going to this store. This is a couple weeks later. Pent up, in, pent up frustration. We, I go to this store, and as I go to this store, I go to buy some power steering fluid. I don't even want to share this story, but I have to share this story. It's what the Lord wanted me to do, so please don't judge me by the time I walk out the door. Um, I walk into this store to buy a, a $10 bottle of power steering fluid, and it's marked as nine ninety nine. The girl, when I get to the register, she had an attitude when I walked in the door. Sitting out complaining about her hours, smoking a cigarette. She seemed indignant that she had to come in and ring me up. I set it on the counter. She tries to charge me $2 more than what it was. I'm already in frustration mode. I said, no. I was like, it says it's nine ninety nine on the shelf. She said, I don't care what it says on the shelf. Is this? I was like, she said, you saw a different price? I said, yeah, I saw a different price. I said, can I show you? She comes to the aisle. Now, keep in mind, we're in pandemic mode. She doesn't want me near her. So <laughs> she gets into the aisle and she squats. I said, see, it's right here. Said, I don't need you hovering over me. I'm like, okay, you know, I'll back up. I was like, you comfortable now? I don't need your smart mouth either. I'm like, Goodness gracious, I don't know how to win with this girl. So we get back to the counter. She's still charging me the same price. 
I said, I just sh- showed you the price. She's like, I'll charge what I want to charge. If you don't like it, you can bleep, 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 bleep out the door. I'm like, wow. So I set my $20 on the counter. I said, here, here's my money. I was like, it should be ten fifty nine. I just want my change. She's like, no, this is the price. I was like, look, I was like, what is marked is this what you got to charge. She said, I don't have to sell you nothing. She said, if you don't like it, leave. It just progressively got worse. And I'm like, okay. So I just took the bottle and threw it against the wall and walked out the door. And I shouldn't say it, but I kind of walked out like, "Uh uh-huh. But she started chasing. (laughs) Kind of in a chase. And I'm like, oh, no. So I get outside. She's going to take pictures of my plate. She's in my face. I'm like, man, get that camera out of my face. She's like, oh, now you're assaulting me. I'm like, are you kidding me? I said, just take your picture. Do what you got to do. I go to go in my truck. She starts spitting on me. She starts standing in front of my truck so I can't leave. All over a $10 bottle of power steering fluid. I go to back up. She won't let me. She's basically trying to keep me there. I'm like, just move so I can leave. Needless to say, I get out of there. I get this piece of mail from the court saying that I'm um, being summoned to court for assault and battery and malicious destruction of property. I'm like, what is this about? I find out what it's about. I'm like, you got to be kidding. I said, wow. Incredible, just what I need. Here's where that abundance of money that God gives you comes, okay? I'm working this job. I'm getting paid well. I'm putting money away, which a good reason I put money away, I guess, because he knew that I was going to act a fool. So (laughs) what ends up happening, they say, we'll give you a court-appointed attorney. I said, I'm not taking my chances with no court-appointed attorney. I call an attorney. He takes my case. I get through the court thing. What ends up happening? I get freed of all the charges. I'm not allowed to go to the store no more. Okay? It's okay. I only went once on a great, great blue moon. Their prices were too high anyway. But uh, I get out of there. It cost me $4,000 to get out of trouble for a $10 bottle of power steering fluid. And I was down about that. This lawyer was a Christian that was rebuking me. And I I had to take it. I had to because I was wrong. See, as a Christian, St. Francis of Assisi says, preach the gospel, use words if necessary. My life, the way I conduct myself, where I go, should be a sermon in and of itself. I don't have to use words. People should see by my actions, you love Jesus. Not you're throwing a bottle at a wall and walking out like you're some sort of pimp because you got over on a $10 bottle. No, that $10 bottle, pimp, cost you $4,000. And it was disgusting. I was so upset that I spent $4,000 because I wasn't living according to what I should. And then you get to these points where you're like, wow, I'm a sorry Christian. Where do I go from here, Lord? You just got me out of this case, but how can you take me back 
when I'm supposed to be a Christian, I was upset about the house. I was upset about the flood. I, it got to the point where I was like, I didn't pray about it because I was mad. And then I went through this court case and I said, I'm not allowed at a store because I completely handled that the wrong way. Instead of being a Christian about it and walking away and showing her the love of Christ, I showed her a different spirit. And it got me into this mindset like, man, I'm a total wreck. Am I a total loss? How many have ever felt that way? Don't raise your hands. (laughs) So that's what inspired this sermon. There's a couple things that I want to explain. So with that being said, disclosing what started the sermon, I kind of got to explain how the Lord grabbed me and how the Lord used me. Because I'm a collision repairman, if for the, I say body man and people say bodybuilder, and, and they, look, they think bodybuilder and look at me and I'm like, no, no. When I say body man, I mean body of a car, not myself, okay? Okay, so I do, I do collision repair and painting. Now, I have to explain how the process works. And the reason why i got to explain the process, how it works, there's a metaphor involved with it. And this is why I started Christ Body Repair. Brandon and I had to start something similar to what you had because what you had in the basement was fire. So I started something in my garage. I hung these pictures up of these cars. It was a car that was totaled. And every week that someone would come, I wasn't sharing doctrine. It's not that I have a problem with doctrine. I, I, I love the Adventist doctrine, but what I wanted to share was the love of Christ. Let's start with a foundation. Fall in love with Jesus. I'm not going to commit to anything unless I fall in love. I'm not going to marry a wife until I court her for a while and fall in love with her. I'm not ready to walk down the aisle. Look, I, I don't want to say it because she's... It took me eight years to marry my wife. Eight years. I knew she was the one... But you got to make sure. I, I hate to sound that way. And everything about her was perfect to me. Perfect. I don't know why men are afraid of commitment. It wasn't that I was afraid. But she got to the point, she's like, if you wanted to marry me, you'd marry me by now. And I'm like, man, let me marry this girl for someone snatches her from me. So commitment takes a while. And it wasn't, it's not until you spend that time, build that relationship, fall in love, that you're ready to walk down the aisle and say, I do. The same way you are with marriage is the same way with God. I have to spend time and make a commitment with him before I walk down this aisle and get into this tub and publicly commit in front of everybody, you're my portion. I choose you. I'm going to be faithful to only you, right? So with Christ's body repair, I said, let me start with the love of Christ. Let me help others fall in love with Jesus before I start pushing doctrine. Yes, I love our doctrine. But the center theme of the Bible is that God is love. If they can understand that center theme, we can work from there. Let's lay a foundation. So that's what I did. I would hang these pictures, and these pictures would be of these cars that were wrecked. Every week they came, I had the pictures changed to a better position. Not as in a position, but they were a better look. So if it started out wrecked here, it was looking better every time they came until it went into the paint booth. And once it was painted, it came out. And the first thing that someone says when they see a brand new car is, or a, not a brand new car, but a repaired car is, wow, it looks brand new. This is the same thing that Paul says of us. If any man 
spends time with Christ, I'm going to throw that in there, he becomes a what? A new creature. All things have passed away. All things become brand new. So this is the way I use the body repair thing. We walk in this way, we come out this way. That's what happens when you spend time with Christ. Okay? A couple things I have to explain about what I do. We're going to go there. First, I want to ask you a question. How many have been into a car accident or a fender bender? Brother, you better raise your hand. <laughs> no? Oh, my goodness. You can't, you can't get this example. <laughs> okay. So when, <laughs> when we get into this wreck, say it's a car you like. Say it's a car you like. How do you feel about that car after it's been wrecked? It's hard, man. You don't like the way it looks. And when you're riding by someone you know, you're kind of like this. Are they gone? Are they gone? You know, you don't want to be seen. You don't want to be seen in it. I'm going to tell you something. My wife, I know this for a fact. My wife is not bougie. But (laughs) I got to use you, baby. I'm sorry. I had this Buick that I bought. Now, I buy cars and I fix them and I make them look better. This particular one was a little bit more work than I didn't want, that I wanted to do. It was a Buick. Do you remember that Buick, Brandon? So I had this gold Buick, and it was hitting the front, so it looked like it was missing teeth, right? It was missing the grill and stuff, and the hood wouldn't latch, so I had a hole in the hood with a chain wrapped through it with a padlock. <laughs> and my wife was driving that car. It was, I did not try to put her in that car. I bought another car that needed a motor. I put the motor in it and put her in that. Spider came out of the vent, and she's like, I'm not driving that car no more. You drive it. I'm like, I don't want to put you in that. She's like, I'll drive that before I drive that car with spiders. That means there's many more. I'm like, okay. Then after driving it a while, she's like, this car is embarrassing. I need to drive something different. So I know how it feels to be in something that you don't want to be seen. And, And this is our life with Christ. If I mess up, I'm not coming to church because I feel like my life is a total wreck. And when you feel that your life is a total wreck, You don't want to be seen by anybody because they'll know what's wrong with you. They'll see something ain't right. And it's not until we get into this wreck that we call who? The insurance company, right? It's not until we get into a wreck with our life that we call on God. Once you hit rock bottom, then you're like, help me, God. It's not that we call on him. We're never going to call the insurance company every day to tell them how we feel. But it's not till we get into that wreck that we call them because we need help. And God's there 24-7, though. Even when we're not in need, he's like, look, I'm here. And what happened with me, I was like, wow, this is like this perfect analogy of our walk with Christ. So I want to explain how the process works. When your car gets this way, once you decide to make your call, you, you call the insurance agency, right? This is how the process works. First, you make a claim to your insurance company. Tell them, look, I got into an accident. Second, right? This is second. You got to cooperate with the insurance adjuster. You got to tell the truth. You have to tell the truth because they investigate it. And if they investigate that you're not telling something right, you're not getting what you're supposed to be getting, okay? Same thing with God. You call that claim. You talk to him. You tell him the truth. He's already investigated it. He knows what's going on. You're coming, you're coming to him, and he already knows. Okay? 
three, pray for the whole. Uh, so they will pay for the whole repair minus your deductible. I'm explaining how the uh, car trade works the best way I can relate things. God chose me as a body guy, so I'm teaching through what I am. Peter was a fisherman. The different tradesmen in the Bible used what they were for the examples. Um, Nathan the prophet went to David when he did what he did with Bathsheba, and he said there was this one little ewe lamb, and this other man had everything, and he wanted to take it from a guy that had nothing. He used the example of what he was to teach him a lesson, okay? And this is the way that God's using me, okay? You got a deductible. Four, pray that it's not a total loss. So a total loss is if the cost of the car exceeds the cost that they're willing to spend. So if you got a car that's worth $40,000, they're willing to pay up to 70000 not 70000 70% of the worth of the vehicle, okay? Once it passes that point, they're like, okay, we're going to wash it. We're just going to, we're going to make it a total loss. If you have a 10-year-old car, a slight fender bender will probably total it. The newer the car, the more they're going to pay. The older the car, the less they're going to pay if you have full coverage insurance. So if it's total wreck, then what your um, insurance company is going to do is they're going to keep the car. They're going to cut you a check for what they say is the value of the car. Um, quite, quite often, I'm sure that's not, but we just want to pay, pray that we don't have a total loss. Okay? Usually, usually, when the insurance company pays you off for your car, it ends up in a scrap or a salvage yard. I don't know how many, how many know anything about this process. Okay, you're in class if not, okay? It, it'll make sense. Just give me some time to, to develop this, okay? So usually when the car gets totaled, when the insurance company buys it, pays you off, it goes to a salvage yard or a scrap yard, okay? A scrap yard just cubes it up, sells the metal all over the world. A salvage yard takes the car, puts it in there. They can either use it for parts or they can sell the whole car to somebody that will rebuild it. I don't know if you've been on Craigslist and you look at cars and it says rebuilt title. That's why, because it was wrecked and it's been rebuilt, okay? So a salvage yard usually auctions off the cars to an entity that has a recycler's license. So if they've got it in a salvage yard, there's a recycler that looks at the car, they're, they're going through the, the internet, they have this auction online, they go through these auctions and they scour these auctions and they look and they say, okay, this one, I've got a customer that's looking for the left door, the left fender, the left uh, rear door, the hood, the grill. Uh, the right side's all smashed, but I got all these good parts. They can buy it for those parts or they can say, hey, that's good enough to where I can fix it and put it back on the road. Okay, so this is what a recycler would do. At times these companies, uh, when they, uh, these companies will, when they look at the auction, they ask, what I just said, they assess to see if the wrecks are repairable so they can sell them again. Okay? This is a uh, scrapyard. What they do is they take the cars, you see they're piled up, they don't find no worth in them. What they do is they just cube them up and uh, sell them all over the world. When the salvage yard usually auctions off the cars to the entity or the recycler license, this is an example of an auction. I know you probably can't see it that well. I'll hone in on one. There's a Chevy truck here. So this is kind of what um, it does. They look at the auction, 
it gives all these details. You see how you see. I, I think you can see. Um, the right side of the truck is wrecked. It tells uh, it's a rollover. That was the primary damage. The retail of the uh, truck is thirty-four thousand. It tells the engine size. It tells whether it runs or drives. You can put a uh, proxy bid of of what you're willing to pay for it, and whether you know they'll tell you that it has keys, what kind of title, where it's at, and so on and so forth. Again, this is when people have a recycler's license. They scour the auctions to buy these cars that they see value in. Okay, the ones that don't, they sell them like this all over the world, usually to melt down into different metal products. Most of the time, it's a car again. Okay, I got a couple of pictures I want to show you, and then I want to ask you an important question. Is this repairable? Yes? Okay. It's pretty bad, isn't it? That's pretty bad, okay. What about this? Maybe, maybe. What about this one? You think it's repairable? It's not that bad, is it? No? Okay. What about this? See, these are the kind of cars I like to buy. Buy them cheap and fix them. <laughs> what about that? Pretty simple. A fender and a door. Blend the panels. Let it go, right? So at the end of this presentation, we're going to revisit these cars, and I'll tell you which ones are repairable and which ones aren't, okay? So how do we get from this to this? Or this to that? And finally, this To this. Let's find out. I want to name, I want, I'm an interactive speaker. I'm not a preacher. I'm a teacher. So I ask questions. I kind of feel that asking questions makes you remember it. I, this is what I was taught in Arise. I learned a lot from being in uh, Brandon Perry's uh, huddle. He would ask questions and he would expect an answer. <laughs> so when he asked, we would, we would kind of be quiet, and he's like, come on, y'all, you know, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm in here with you. I'm asking you something. So I want you to name some characters that you would consider a total loss in the Bible. Who would you consider a total loss? By our today's standards, what would, who would you consider in the Bible a total loss? Who? who? David? Rahab? Did you say Rahab? Wow, okay. Samson? Who? Judas? Wow, that's... that's. Ahab? Okay. What about, how about this? Let's narrow it down. Let's label all people that are considered gods. God's people, not gods, but God's people. Who of them would you consider a total loss? Who? It's, man, that's all of them. <laughs> the whole Bible, right? Okay. So there was a few that I, I, I there's, there's plenty that I've heard. There's, there's a couple that I thought about. Adam was one of them, okay? Allowed sin to enter in the world, caused time, right? We, we were timeless until sin entered into the world. Then the clock started ticking for our lives. Moses. What's that? Jacob. That's a great one, man. That's a great one. 
Uh, Moses, David, someone said, you said David, murdered a man for his wife. Murdered a man for his wife. How about Nebuchadnezzar? Idolater, murderer. What about Peter? Think about it. He cursed and denied God. The disciples were known for their pure language, so when he did that, he did it to prove to them, I'm not a follower of this guy. Okay? What about Saul? Persecutor and murderer of Christians. Have you ever thought of these? The one that stuck out with me the most when I went through the situation that I just went through was Mary. Mary. So I decided to focus on Mary for today's presentation. Okay, now, with that, the name Mary, in my studies, I found four different Marys in the Bible. Has anybody noticed the four different Marys? Okay. I'm going to try and differentiate them the best I can. Okay. There's Mary, the mother of Jesus. That's one. You had Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, also called the sister of Mary. Not Mary, Mary, the group, but <laughs> the sister of Mary. And the wife of Cleophas in John 19, 25. I'm going to simplify that. Give me a second. You had Mary Magdalene. And you had Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. These are the four Marys that I've noticed, okay? And I think parents, so we're going to focus in on Mary, uh, the mother of James and Joseph for a second so that we can clarify this one real quick. I think parents are more creative than George Foreman. They don't name all their kids after themselves, okay? You remember how George Foreman named all his kids George Foreman, okay? The name, the name, they name their kids more than one name, right? Family is family in the Bible. So if we were to go to the kings of Babylon and talk, to, talk about the kings of Babylon, you got Daniel chapter 5. It says Belteshazzar, his father was Nebuchadnezzar. But was Nebuchadnezzar his father? No, he wasn't his father. Because you have Nebuchadnezzar was Nebuchadnezzar's father. Then you had Nebuchadnezzar. After Nebuchadnezzar was Amal Marduk. You had Neraglazer, Labesh Marduk. Nabonidus was the father of Belteshazzar. Okay, so the, he was a descendant of Nebuchadnezzar, but he wasn't Nebuchadnezzar's son. He was his grandson. This is how Hebrew custom was. They would label someone a son, even if it was six, seven generations down. Okay? So, remember, he offered uh, Daniel the third place in the kingdom, meaning that he was co-regent with his father. His father was... Uh, erecting a god to uh, in Arabia, send the moon god to a temple that he wanted to build, and the priests of Babylon were upset about that, so he had to he was gone somewhere else, and his son took the throne. So, who are the brothers of Jesus? How many know the brothers of Jesus? James. Who else? Oh, come on, Joseph, also known as Joseph. Judas or Jude, and Simon. These are the brothers of Jesus. Now, Mary the mother of James and Joseph. Mary the mother of James and Joseph, also sister of Mary. Are you seeing this? This is Mary's sister-in-law. Okay, so who are the brothers of Jesus? James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. Eusebius was a Greek uh, historian stating that Cleophas was the brother of Joseph, the husband of the Virgin Mary. Okay, what is point now? In Jewish custom, what happens? Brand, I've got to use you as an example. 
Jewish custom. If a fellow brother in your family passed, who would take on the kids? Who would take his kids? You. You. You would become their father, right? And your sibling, your, your kids would be their siblings, correct? So I, I got to ask a question. When Joseph went to Egypt, how many did it say went to Egypt? Or when, jo- when Jesus was born, how many were in the manger? Jesus, Joseph, and Mary. It never talked about any other kids, did it? It wasn't until later, even when they exiled from Egypt, when it talks about it in Matthew 2.15, when they came back from Egypt, because the, the decree to kill, the uh, massacre of the innocents, right? When he came back from Egypt, it still didn't mention any other siblings. It only talked about Joseph, Mary, and Jesus. So this he's, historian is saying that Cleophas was the husband of, uh, was the brother of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Okay, so it's pointing out the fact that Cleophas was married to a woman named Mary, which was the sister-in-law of Mary, the mother of Jesus. He took on their kids. This is what I believe. This is through my studies and through um, historians. And uh, this is what I believe that Mary in the text is the sister-in-law of Mary. Now that we've cleared that up, I want to start focusing on two more Marys. And these two Marys are going to be the main topic, okay? So... Genesis 30. How many remember the story of Judah, his sons that died? In Genesis 38, remember, Judah's sons died, so he said, okay, now you've got to take on the wife so that he can have, and it just passed on until finally all of them died. And <laughs> not all of them, but two of them died. Okay. All right. So scholars believe, and so do I believe. I believe we're going to talk about Mary Magdalene and um, uh, Mary the mother, or not Mary the mother, Mary of Bethany. I'm going to call her Mary of Bethany because Lazarus and Martha were from Bethany, correct? So let's talk about them too. I want to briefly explore what scholars and I believe, and of course we'll glean this from the Word of God and dive right in. Remember Isaiah 28.10 says, line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. Do we interpret Scripture? No, it interprets itself. Thank you. That's exactly where I wanted to go. Hebrews 4.12 says, the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, cutting asunder, right? So if the Word of God is living and powerful, it's a supernatural book. Do we clarify it? No. You know, uh, 2 Corinthians 13, 1 states, in the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. So you got 40 authors in the Bible, right? All from different walks of life. This part and this part, they tie together like a puzzle piece. And what happens? They're testifying or witnessing multiple witnesses and the Bible interprets itself. We only find scripture after scripture where they interlock and they hear a little, there a little, line upon line, precept upon precept. So when the Bible speaks about Mary, uh, Mary of Bethany and Mary Magdalene, it never mentions them together. Has anybody ever noticed that? Have you ever noticed them ever mentioned together? No. Each time either of them are mentioned, they are at the feet of Jesus, weeping, right? And both appeared to have money. In fact, I want to go to the Word. 
of God. Like we said, we would do all our scriptures are going to be up front. I put everything on the screen. I'm hoping that I can read that screen and not turn around. And I think I can. Okay, Luke 8, verse 2 and 3, it says, And certain women which had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary, called Magdalene, out of whom went seven devils, and Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others which ministered unto them with their substance. This first points out, Mary who? This is Mary Magdalene, right? What did she use? Her money, substance, right? This is a Greek word, huparhonton, meaning possessions, good, property, right? John 12, 1 through 8 reads this. All right, I'm going to have to turn around for that one. Then Jesus, six days before Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with them. Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Then saith one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which would betray him, why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bag and bare what was put therein. Then Jesus said, let her alone. Against the day of my burying hath she kept this, for the poor shall be with you all. Always you have with you, but me you have not always. So Mary anoints the feet. We know this is think who's who's in here that would make you think that this is Mary, the brother of uh, Mary of Bethany, Lazarus and Martha. Right? Notice how it says Martha served. Do you remember the other text in Luke ten forty where Martha served and she said Mary was where? Where, where was Mary? At the feet of Jesus. Soaking it all in. And, Mar- and Martha's like, can you tell her to help me? And he's like, listen, she's getting what she needs right here. She's feeding on every word of Christ, right? So here we see her at the feet of Jesus again. She took a pound of ointment and very costly and anointed the feet of Jesus, right? So we're assuming that this is Mary of Bethany, right? Notice how it says that it was 300 pence, which in today's currency is $1,380. She spent $1,380 to anoint the Messiah's feet with oil, right? As time goes on, I want you to see that this family had a tomb. Who else do you know of in the Bible that had a tomb? Joseph of Arimathea. Did he have money? Absolutely. He had tons of money. He had his own tomb. This family has their own tomb. Remember, Lazarus was in his own tomb. Roll the stone away. No, Lord, he stinks. He's been in there four days. Roll away the stone. Okay? At the funeral of Lazarus, there was hired mourners. They hired people to mourn. Okay? So obviously, you, hear, you see Mary Magdalene had money, and Mary of Bethany has money. Right? Just comparing Scripture with Scripture here. Here a little, there a little. Let's go to Luke 7. And behold... A woman in the city, which was a what? A sinner. When she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment, and stood at his feet behind him, weeping, and began to wash his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee which had bidden him saw it, 
he spoke within himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner. I want you to pay special attention to 37, how he specifies a woman that was a sinner. And then in verse 39, he states that if he was truly a prophet, he would know what manner of woman this is. What are you assuming? What kind of manner of woman is she? What was the thing that they were disgusted about with women? She was a harlot. She was a harlot. Okay? So if he knew what kind of manner of woman she was, he wouldn't even be sitting in her presence. They were disgusted with her. We just read a similar excerpt in John 12, 1 through 8, stating that this Mary, you know, anointed his feet. We assume that Lazarus and Martha were around, so we assume that this is Mary of Bethany, but this also ties in with Mary Magdalene because it has the same characteristics, doesn't it? Watch this. Let's turn to Luke 8, 2. And certain women, which had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom went seven devils. What are some of the fruits of the Spirit? What are some of the fruits that are not of the Spirit? Just consider that, okay, as we go through this. We're only establishing preternatural likeness to show a cohesive identity. Magdala, let's talk about Magdala, was a town on the western shore of Galilee. Theologians say that Magdala was frequented by Roman soldiers looking for rest and relaxation. There was always a lot of booze and a lot of prostitution going on. They wanted time off, and when they went to time off, they went over to Magdala to get what they, to feed their addiction. Prostitutes of the area were known to follow the crowds back to the Jewish feasts, okay? Bethany was about a mile and a half from Jerusalem on the southeast side of Mount Olives. This was the final stop for people traveling to Jerusalem for the Jewish feasts. Who lived in Bethany? Mary, Lazarus, Martha, right? This is where their house was. It was more like a villa. And this is actually where Jesus gave his final blessing before he ascended to heaven in Luke 24. Okay? I think we're establishing a cohesive identity. I want to see where it all started in John 8. John 8. Jesus went onto the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came up again into the temple. Now this is very key. And all the people came unto him, and he sat and taught them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had sat her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. What manner of woman is this? Such should be stoned. Okay, you see the, the synonymous uh, banter here. But what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him that they might have to accuse him, but Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. Verse 2. Where was he? Where did this just, just transpire? This is really key. This transpired in the temple, right? Right in the center of the temple. What is happening here? A woman's caught in the very act of adultery in verse 3. Verse 4, this woman was caught and the law of Moses says that she's got to be stoned. But what about the male? 
They drag the woman in here. She's in the very act. They drag her in here. Where is the guy? Didn't the law of Moses say that he should be stoned too? How come only she's in there? This is how they thought about women, right? So they completely disregard him. And if she got caught in the very act, I, I can, you can naturally assume that she was naked. How humiliating. Let's drag someone into the church, point out their sins, and they're completely stripped of any clothing, any barrier, or anything. And this is what they do. Such should be stoned. He wrote their sins on the ground. They publicly try to humiliate this woman and entrap Jesus. And I'm sure that since she was caught in the act, she was naked. The Jewish leaders were smart. But they weren't smarter than Jesus, were they? Let's check this out. They thought they put him in a situation that he could not get out of. Like they were playing chess and they had him in checkmate. God always has another move, doesn't he? Okay, they figure if he chose to show... Mary mercy and leniency that he was disregarding the law of Moses, okay? Or if he said, go ahead and stone her, they're going to trap him saying that he, so they were like, if he chooses to stone her, they were going to charge him with expropriating the authority of Rome. They were the only ones that had the authority for capital cases. So either way he answers, they're like, we got him. He's trapped. There's nothing he can do. Check out what Jesus does, though. He's brilliant for this one. Uh, let's go on through 7, seven through 11. Um, so when they continued, John 8, 7 through 11. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him cast the first stone. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Brilliant, right? Who is without sin cast the stone? Who is the only one without sin? And what was his question? He said, if they don't condemn you, neither do I. Right? I want you to think of that. None of them were sinless. If being sinless was a prerequisite to stone her, wouldn't that make the law null and void? Right? So the only one that stood in her presence that had the right to carry out judgment was Christ. They bring her to the church to accuse her, not to exhort her. I want you to see this. Hebrews 10, 24 through 25 says, Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves. What is assembling? We're coming to church together, right? We're assembling together. We should exhort, stir up love, do good works, right? Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as in the manner of some, but exhorting one another so much the more as you see the day approaching. Consider one another. Stir up love. Bring someone to church. You don't bring them to accuse them. Why would you bring someone to church to accuse them? They're in the presence. Okay, they bring, they bring her to church or the synagogue to accuse her in the presence of Jesus, right? If we did, whose house is this? This is God's house. In the Bible, he says, where two or more are gathered, where is he? He's here. 
we're here for him, right? And because we're here for him, his presence is here. Why would we bring someone to church to accuse them? Why? Why do we bring people to church to accuse them? So many people don't come to church today because of this. What does the verse say? It says, don't forsake the assembling with one another. The Pharisees and scribes didn't understand how Jesus could hang out with sinners. I'm a sinner. Are you a sinner? Who isn't a sinner in here? Nobody raise their hands? We belong together, don't we? We're here for a reason, right? Isn't this a hospital for people like us? We all have a disease that can be cured by time with Christ. Right? So if we're just going to accuse each other or drag someone in acting like I'm better than them, I'm going to drag them in because their sins are worse than mine, that's baloney. A sin is transgression of the law. If you're guilty of one, you're guilty of them all. You can't bring someone to church and accuse them like you're better than them. That's why people don't come anymore. I just shared this morning with you how I messed up. You think I wanted to tell you guys what I did? Isn't it embarrassing? Who wants to know your dirty, your dirty laundry. Nobody wants to know that. Nobody wants to air it, right? But if they do air it, what do they need? Do they need you to condemn them or accuse them? No, they need you to love them, right? I shared with you this morning what I messed up, and I'm here because I need you to exhort me even more today because what's happening? The Lord is coming, and if... You don't exhort me, and if you turn your back on me and accuse me, where am I going to head? Out that door. And guess what? What if I never have a chance to get myself right with God, and I needed you to exhort me? Who does that fall on? Something to think about, right? I've come for healing, not persecution. I came here to heal. But even though Mary was being accused, she was in the presence of Jesus, and we are too. Guess what Mary found, even though she was accused in the presence of Jesus? What did she find? Mercy, right? Forgiveness with no condemnation. John 3.17 says that God didn't come to this world to condemn the world. It was condemned. And because it's condemned, he's like, look, I know it's condemned. It's like a house that you see in the hood. You go to the hood and this thing's all messed up. There's no windows. It's boarded up. It's burnt. There could be drugs pushing through it. You don't know what's going on. And then the bulldozer's coming through saying, we're going to bulldoze this. Jesus is the one that stands in front of the bulldozer and says, hey, don't bulldoze it. They're like, it's condemned. He's like, I want it. It's worth something to me. What do you want for it? It's not worth anything. It is to me. I see beauty in it. I can change it. I'll pay the price for it. Call off your dogs, right? We were already condemned. Jesus came and said, I see something in you, and I see something in you, and you, and me. You're worth something to Jesus because he didn't come to condemn. He didn't condemn her. Did he say that her sin was okay? He didn't. What did he tell her? Sin no more. I don't condemn you, just don't do it no more. We come as we are. We don't stay as we are. So after all, 
she just went through being publicly humiliated. How beautiful is it that she was publicly forgiven by God? You want to humiliate one of God's people publicly? He'll uplift them and forgive them publicly. And then you become the one that's humiliated. Okay? Where would you go if God makes sure that you are publicly forgiven? Are you going to go back to your old life? Are you going to go back, back to the old lifestyle you were? Fornicating like she was? Being an adulterer the way she was? Would you go back to the place that you were? Or would you go home? Would you go tell your family? What would you do? Think about the woman at the well. What did she do when Jesus came to her and he said, give me a drink? She said, you're a Jew. You guys don't talk to us. You don't want nothing to do with us. You want a drink from me? He said, if you knew the water that I had to offer, you would never thirst again. She wanted that water. She said, well, let me go back and tell my husband. He's like, you don't have no husband. He's like, for the man that you live with now isn't your husband, for you've had five. She said, I perceive that you're a prophet. She started seeing these things, and they were unfolding before, and she's like, this is God. This is the Messiah. This is the one that was chosen. This is the one that the prophecies talked about. What did she do when she went home? What did she do when she went home? She told everybody, come see the man that told me everything about my life. He didn't judge me. He told me, he knew about these things and he didn't say anything bad to me. He was like, look, she became an evangelist. She became an evangelist right then and there. And this is what we're supposed to do when, when the Lord forgives you, you tell others. You got forgiveness from God. It doesn't matter what you've done. God's still in the business of forgiving. He's still in the business of healing. So listen, we talk about physicians and everything else. We got physicians for mental problems. We got physicians for physical problems. We got a physician for a broken heart. We got a physician for someone that feels neglect. Man can't heal us. Although we got brilliant minds in this world because God gave them that gift, God uses them sometimes too. But at the end of the day, Jesus is the ultimate physician to let you know, yes, you went far. I'm not condemning you. Just come back. Don't do it no more. If you're forgiven publicly, I would go home. Back to the influences of the way that you were? No. You'd go home. More than likely, you'd probably go back to your family and tell them, I seen a man that told me everything about myself. Come, see this man. He forgave me, and you know who knows you best. Your family knows you best. You always got that family member (laughs) that ruins parties or does something or shows up and messes up something. But that family member can be forgiven. If they come back and say, Let me tell you everything that the Lord has done for me. Listen, because the world's already shut them out. Family's all we got, right? Family's all we got. And if he or she came back home to share it with her family, this is where Lazarus and Martha Martha come in. I believe that this is what Mary did, and I believe that she introduced him to her brother and sister, the woman at the well we talked about. 
I want to talk about Christ's first time in their home, in Martha and uh, Lazarus' home. It's in Luke 10. Mary and Martha worship and serve. We talked, we talked about this earlier. Now it happened, as they went, they entered into a certain village, and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. And Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part which will not be taken away from her. He's here with the disciples teaching. Martha's running around, right? Busy, catering, and entertaining. This is good. This is good stuff. She's doing good things. These are people that are following Christ, and she's making sure that they're comfortable, making sure that they're eating. Let's make people feel welcome. What's the best way to solidify a relationship? Food. Food. Marriage relationships in the Bible. Food. The wedding feast. Food. What happened when Israel came onto the mountain? Exodus 24, they came up to the mountain, and they ate with God, and it says that they did not die. Right? He's solidifying this covenant relationship with him, and this is what's happening here. Relationships are being solidified. When you invite someone into your home, you don't invite them into your home because you don't like them. You invite them into your home so you can get to know them. That's why food is always presented. I want to get to know you. You want to come to my house later? That's how it works. Right? So she's entertaining these people, but she's frustrated that Mary is, where is she at? At the feet of Jesus. At the feet of Jesus, feeding on his every word. Deuteronomy 8.3 says, Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Remember when the disciples came to Jesus at the well and they offered him food? He said, I got meat that you know not of. And that's Jesus. Why would he say meat? Isn't meat more satisfying than bread? I mean, I'm not a meat eater, but I'm saying you got the protein, you got the nutrients, something that's going to hold you over. Bread's gone, man. I mean, bread goes good with meat in it. I, I don't eat meat, but you need both in order to, to, to have substance, right? So if you want to enlighten or teach others, I want, I want, let me back up. If we want to enlighten or teach others, we have to be learners of Jesus first. Every church you go to has multiple Marthas, and these are good things. We need Marthas, but we also need Marys. Someone sitting at the feet of Jesus, feeding on every word. Learning at the feet of Jesus creates the most passionate workers for God. We have to know Jesus. When you know Jesus, of course you're serving. And then there's people that just want to sit and know Jesus more and more and more. They're taking the guy. Everybody shares the gospel. That's what the gospel commission is. It says that every true disciple is a minister of the gospel. The great commission of Matthew 28, 19, and 20 was to go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, right? So we're just building on repetitive narratives. Bear with me. It's going to come to a climactic end. I want to talk about the scenes of Lazarus and his passing. I don't want to read all of it, sort of, but I do. <laughs> the death of Lazarus. We got John eleven thirty two and 33. We got 11, 1 through 3. The death of Lazarus. Now there's a certain man sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil, wiped his feet with her hair. His brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, 
He whom you love is sick. Let's scroll on down to 32. Then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, where did she fall? Saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. He was troubled to see one of his followers crying over a dead brother. Jesus spent a lot of time in this home. They are great friends of his. Now he's come to raise him from the dead. She's at his feet crying about a dead brother. And he's groaned in the spirit. Think of that for a second. How many of us cry for a brother or sister that's spiritually dead at the feet of Jesus? If this is how he feels, we need to consistently cry at the feet of Jesus for a spiritually dead brother or sister. Because if he's groaned in the spirit, something's going to happen from it. He raised that man from the dead, and he can raise a spiritually dead brother or sister from the dead and restore them to life if we're at his feet agonizing, praying, and fasting for someone that you know that isn't right with God. I want to live by Mary's example. I want to talk about verse 1 through 3 as we close. As we are close to wrapping up. Specifically, verse 2. Mary is the woman who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil, wiped his feet with her hair. I want to talk. Matthew and Mark, the Gospels of Matthew and Mark, they add this to it. I want to start with Luke. I mean, I'm sorry, Matthew and Luke. There's something very deep going on here. Verse 37, uh, 36. Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat, and he went to the Pharisees. We're repeating scripture, but we're just gleaning more stuff from them. And he went to the Pharisees' house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisees' house, she brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil. She stood at his feet behind him, weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair on her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, spoke unto himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would know what manner of woman this is that's touching him, for she is a sinner. This is the woman that was in the city who was a sinner. She's weeping. She begins to wet or wash his feet. You'd be crying an awful lot to wet someone's feet with your tears, wouldn't you? I think more than tears would be wetting his feet, I'm sorry to say. Okay? She wipes them with her hair and anoints it with costly oil or ointment. Verse 39, if he was a prophet, he would know what type of woman this is touching him. She is a sinner. Remember John 8, 5, such a woman should be stoned, right? An adulterer. Matthew 26, 6 through 13, words it similarly, but adds this. Anointing at Bethany. And when Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, Simon the leper was a Pharisee, a woman came to him having an alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil, and she poured it where? Where did she pour it? On his head. Where was it poured last time? His feet. So now it's on his head and his feet. Something really significant about that. We see the similarities. Let's talk about the tears and the anointing. Mary would have to be crying an awful lot to be able to wash his feet with her tears. Okay? Jewish culture. So, 
Culture is something many of us can't understand, especially when we're not of a culture. I married my wife. She's a different culture. I, I've learned so much from her about African-American culture, stuff that I didn't know, stuff that I love, stuff that I absolutely love, and I'm like, wow, that's interesting. We do this. So my family is Irish. We do weird things. I mean, our culture, our tradition is to name each firstborn boy after the father. So my son is named after me. He's my first son, even though he's my second kid, but he's my first son. My brother's named after my father, and so on and so forth. That's what Irish males do with their kids, right? I learned culture from her. Jewish culture is different, right? We see how they acknowledge um, grandfathers as father, right? There's the respect thing. We see the difference with the way things are with women. It, it seemed more like men seemed to be more important. Not that they were more important. There was just a thing. When you talk about the exodus from uh, Egypt, it only counted the men. It said there was 800,000. It didn't talk about the women and the children. Who knows how many there was, considering the women and the children. Okay, There's just different culture, and we don't understand it always, but we shouldn't question it. I never question her culture, my wife's culture, because I don't know it. I want to know it, and I, wanna, I want us to amalgamate perfectly. You know what I'm saying? So Jewish culture believed that tears were almost sacred. You hear that? Tears were sacred. And this is what they did with tears. They would keep a small jar called a lacrimatory to save their tears of sorrow. What is your tear duct called? A lacrimal gland, right? So they would save their tears in this little vial called a lacrimatory gland. David talks about, or, or a lacrimatory um, uh, uh, jar. David talks about his tears of sorrow, right? Another, so they would save these tears in this lacrimal gland. And this is what I believed happened. Another Jewish custom was to anoint the head of an individual to be king or priest. In Exodus 29, the anointing of Aaron and his sons, they were anointed as priests, right? What did they do when they anointed Saul? His head. I want you to see this. Mary's crying, right? She wets his feet with her tears of sorrow that she saved up. You can't just wet someone's feet by crying. There's got to be a way that she wet his feet. Jewish custom, Jewish culture, they save these tears. Let me take my tears of sorrow and pour them at the feet of Jesus. We can take our tears of sorrow and pour them at the feet of Jesus. Here she is. She pours out all her sorrows on his feet from this lacrimatory, right? Then anoints not only his feet. What else did she anoint? His head. She anoints his feet. She anoints his head. So essentially she's anointing him as priest and king of her life. I've laid all my burdens at your feet. Today, from the things that you've done for me, I wasn't condemned. You told me to go sin no more. You kept up with me. You kept teaching me. You kept accepting me. No matter how bad my sin was, you still loved me and you said you didn't condemn me and you told me not to sin no more. So here I am. I'm pouring all my sorrows at your feet. All the things that I've done, all the things that I've gone through, I'm laying them at your feet and I'm going to anoint your feet 
and I'm going to anoint your head. I anoint you as priest, and I anoint you as king of my life. I'm done. I'm all in. This is what she's saying here. The next three times she is mentioned, she's at the foot of the cross, the foot of the tomb, and last you find her in John 20, verse 17, clinging to Jesus when he's resurrected. She's clinging to the feet of Jesus. She spent her life from the time she was forgiven at his feet. How often have I taken forgiveness for granted? Have I stayed at his feet? Have you ever asked yourself that? Take your sorrows. They are sacred because you're dropping them on someone sacred. Pour them at the feet of Jesus and anoint him as king and priest of your life because she was the first one, even though she was considered the sinner. What kind of manner of woman is this that sits with him? He sits with sinners. And who did he allow to see him first when he was resurrected? A sinner. The one that anointed him as priest and king of her life. He allowed Mary to witness the victory of the gospel first when he was risen. He gained power of the grave and secured our salvation through his death and resurrection. And she knew, believed, and wanted to be there to make sure she's seen him. How did she feel when he was buried? She said, let me know where he is so that I can give him a proper burial. That's why she anointed him. And the woman's sins that were many and my sins that are many and everybody's sins in here that are many. We have the honor and privilege to see him at the second coming. And when we resurrect... But that's only if we decide to lay our tears at his feet and anoint him as king and priest of our lives. There are many examples of people in the Bible that most of us would deem as a total loss. We talked about a few today. Moses he murdered a man but was called to be the leader of God's people and spoke to him face to face. Was he a total loss? No. David, he slept with another man's wife and murdered that man. But what did God call him? A man after my own heart. Because he found forgiveness and anointed him as priest and king of his life. Nebuchadnezzar, an idol-worshiping pagan that turned his life to God and acknowledged God as supreme. He acknowledged God as the God of all gods. Peter, this is so deep. Peter, how many of us are Peters? I'm a Peter. Peter denied the Lord three times by cursing and says, I don't know this man. He denied Jesus. Jesus. 
who was the first person after he seen Mary that he wanted to tell that he was resurrected? Peter. Why? Because he denied him three times. And after he denied him three times, this is what he says to him when he sees him on the shore. He says, Peter, lovest thou me? He said, Lord, I love you. Feed my lambs. He said, Peter, do you love me? He said, yes, Lord, I love you. Peter, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know everything. You know I love you. Feed my sheep. First he denies him three times. Now he's saying, I love you. So now he denied him. Now he's anointed him. And Jesus is saying, here he is. Yes, you denied me three times. You're forgiven. I asked you three times that you love me. Now you're reaffirming that you love me. Even though you denied me three times, now you're affirming me three times. I'm reinstating you as a disciple. You can be reinstated. How many have denied God and now they're fearful that they can't be reinstated? If he can reinstate Peter, can he reinstate me? Can't he reinstate you? I failed after three floods. I failed in the store with this female in front of her, acting like a complete fool. But God decided to reinstate me and make me write this sermon. He reinstated him, and what did Peter do? He preached a gospel message that reached 3,000, and they turned their lives to God right then and there after he said, I love you, three times. Tell Jesus you love him. Forget the past. Move forward. The Christian walk is a movement. You fall several times. You get back up. Make sure that your get-up game is great. Because when you get up, he's the one that's holding you up. We know the Footprints uh, poem. When you didn't see two tracks, it's because that's when I carried you. Let him carry you. If you can't get up, let him walk you. He's strong enough. It's us that are weak. Saul turned Paul, persecutor of Christians, to the most publicized author of the New Testament. (laughs) Don't we feel like these kind of people are a total loss? God didn't. Aren't you glad that when God looks at you, he don't think you're a total loss? It doesn't matter what fellow brothers or sisters in the church do or if they accuse you in the church. God says, you're here, you're worth it. You're not a total loss. I can fix you. Nobody in here can fix you. I don't care what doctor, what doctor they have, and it's no disrespect to anybody that has a PhD, but only God can fix you. Nobody else. I don't care what type of doctor you are. God can fix you. Do you remember these cars? And the question that I asked, which one of these are repairable? What's your answer now? All of them. Every one of them. Some of you might represent this car. Some of you might represent the first car that I showed. It don't matter how wrecked you feel. It don't matter how lost you feel. 
you're not lost with Jesus. You see, these cars are labeled too expensive to fix. To some, they're just not worth it. And they end up at this auction. They're bought by someone that still sees value in them. He sits and scours this auction continuously saying, I want this one. 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 This one. This one. This one. All of them. And his resources are endless. He owns a thousand uh, he owns a, the cattle on a thousand hills, the fullness thereof, the earth is mine and everything in it. You belong to Jesus. It don't matter how totaled you feel. And guess what? Each of these cars is a different color. He don't care the color. I want them all. I don't care the make. We have German cars. We have American cars. We have Italian cars. All of them mean something to him. He's going to continually scour that internet to find these cars because they mean something to him. He sees them as useful still, right? No matter the state, the country, the condition, it doesn't matter. They're of value to him. Each and every one of you in here today is of value to Jesus. Doesn't matter the color, the nationality, the creed, you belong to Jesus and you're worth something to him and his resources are endless. He can buy and fix you. Remember John 3.17, For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but the world through him might be saved. We're all condemned, but he's willing to pay the price for condemned merchandise. You might say to yourself, I struggle. I struggle with drugs. I have struggles with anger. I have struggle, struggle with lust. I have struggled with lying. I have struggles with anything. It doesn't matter what your struggle is. You got someone that is the doctor of fixing any struggle you have. I have a heart condition. It doesn't matter. I get so frustrated. It doesn't matter. God can fix it. Not one of us is beyond repair. Not one of us has to be considered scrap. Guess how Jesus found me? In pieces. He put me together and I got into a wreck and ended up in pieces again. And he put me back together and I got into a wreck again. And he keeps putting me back together. No matter how many times I get wrecked, he puts me together. He knows how to do it. He's the expert. Nobody in here is the expert on how to put me together or you together. Only Jesus is the expert at that. Again, nobody's beyond repair. I have been in more wrecks since the first time he forgave me than I can count. And it seems like the more I reach out to him, the more I wreck. But each time he fixes me, I get better and better. You see, we have full coverage with Jesus and life insurance. You see what I'm saying? We have life insurance because of what he's done. All we have to do is anoint him as king and priest. Okay? We have to call on him. 
how many want to call on him? Are you comfortable with coming forward so that we can pray and solidify this? Or do you want to stay where you're at? (laughs) Psalms 50 says, Call on me in the day of trouble. I'll deliver you. And you'll glorify me. If any man is in Christ, he becomes a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become brand new. I want to tell you something. Why do they call collision repair men and painters artists? And why do we consider the jobs that we do art? Because we're fixing something that nobody else thought could be fixed and paint it, and it comes out different. So it's considered artwork. Let God make you his masterpiece. Let him paint a perfect picture from your example to somebody else. You're not junk. God don't make junk. When you see the creation of the world, everything that God made was good. It was good because God don't make junk and nobody in here is junk. So, if the Spirit is speaking to your heart right now, listen. Is He calling you and telling you, I don't care about the past. Come back. Just come back. And I want you to consider something. We don't know where our fate is when we leave here today. Heaven forbid if something happened to us. Let your decision be solidified now. The Bible says, choose ye this day whom you will serve. Aren't we running out of time? When you make a claim, you only have a certain amount of time to make a claim with a car. When you get into a wreck, once it passes a certain time, there's nothing that they can be done for you. Don't let that time pass you now. What if the Spirit's voice gets smaller and smaller and smaller. That's a terrifying thought. If the insurance company continually calls you and calls you to let you know, eventually they stop calling. You have to move forward and make the choice. Don't let time run out. Spend time in God's body shop daily not monthly not weekly daily remember what he asked the disciples in the garden of Gethsemane he said can you not watch and pray for one hour can we dedicate at least one hour every day to him watch and pray one hour spend time in the body shop with God doesn't he deserve that don't you deserve that We're not promised tomorrow. Again, I'll say, Joshua said, Choose ye this day whom you will serve. If this is your desire, can you please stand? As we pray, 
that God solidifies our decision because all of heaven is watching. Father God, thank you for not condemning us, Lord, but for giving us with no condemnation, Lord. Thank you for your mercy and your grace. Though we don't deserve it, you still give it, Lord. If there's anyone in here today wrestling with things that have gone on in their life and they want to recommit themselves to you today, Lord, speak to their hearts. Break up the fallow ground, Lord, to plant a seed that will grow into a beautiful, beautiful picture of who you are and what you've done for us. Lord, some of us struggle with insecurities, acceptance, fear. Lord, take those away. We know that your spirit is here with us today, Lord, and we pray that your spirit rains down on everybody today in a personal way because you're a personal God. You're not impersonal with your your back turned to us. You're the covenant-keeping God. Help us to make a covenant with you today so that you can hold us by our right hand and help us. We need your help, Lord. Just yours. So, Lord, as we, be, we depart today, let us leave here different. Let others see that we've been in your body shop and that we've been through the processes to be repaired And we're brand new creatures, Lord, because of you. Help us to spend that time with you because Paul says, if any man or woman is in Christ, he becomes a new creature, Lord. You say come as you are, but don't stay as you are, Lord. We come to you with our burdens. We come to you with our fears. We come to you with our faults. Any way we've denied you, Lord, please reinstate us into your discipleship. Help us to feed your sheep, Lord. Bless us today as we leave, Lord. Don't let us return the same. Help us to continually spend the time to be different. Help us to preach the gospel and use words when necessary. We thank you, Lord, and love you for all that you've done, for all that you will do. In your name, I pray and thank you, Jesus. Amen.